So last week we saw how God designed all of human history to tell one main story, the story of the war between the seed of the serpent, the dragon, and the seed of the woman who is Christ. In every epic in world history, uh, the dragon's goal has always been to kill the seed of the woman, but in every epic in, in world history, God has always raised up a savior to slay the dragon. So last week dealt with the dragon, and this week, God is dealing with his people. There's one vital truth that the people of God must learn. You see, the saviors that God raises up in time, they're not only hated by the dragon, but they're actually also hated by God's own people. Um, the dragon tried to kill Moses as a baby, but when he was an adult, it was God's own people who attacked him and threatened him and rejected him. Uh, Moses had to flee Egypt, not so much because of what he did, but because his own people had refused him and they had turned state's evidence over to Pharaoh. Stephen uh, in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 7, he retells this very story. And he says in Acts 7.35, he says, This Moses, they, Israel, rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? See, Exodus is actually teaching us the gospel. That, that the gospel announces that nobody is born on God's side, um, that no one is righteous, no one uh, understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3. So there are no good guys. We understand that the seed of the serpent rejected the Savior, but so do God's people in this very account. And a, and a failure to see this, a failure to see that the poison of sin is actually within our own veins, is to get the gospel wrong. Um, God didn't send his son into the world to be welcomed with open arms by a people who loved him. Christ came into the world being both attacked by the dragon and by his church. John 1.11 says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Isaiah 53.3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. So last week we saw that the dragon was the bad guy. This week we see that God's people are the bad guys. So here's the big idea. All saviors are rejected by the very people they are trying to save. Thus is the madness of sin. So let's begin with our doctrine this morning. And what we need to know is that there are two 
New Testament passages that are so helpful and so vital to understand what's going on here in Exodus 2. The first one is Acts chapter 7. Please turn there with me. Acts chapter 7, verses 23 through 29. This is Stephen's sermon to the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And he's recounting all of Israel's history. Acts 7, 23 through 29. When Moses was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. But they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. So I just want to take away three truths from this passage um, as we interpret Exodus. So truth number one from verse 24 is that Moses acted as a defender and avenger for the oppressed in Israel. Truth number two Moses, from from verse 25, Moses was self-aware that God sent him to bring salvation to Israel. And then truth number three is that Israel as a whole, from verse 27, Israel as a whole rejected Moses as God's man. Next, let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. Verses 24 through 27. Hebrews 11, 24 through 27. Now, like Stephen's sermon, Hebrews helps us to see what's going on in Moses' heart in Exodus chapter 2. So Hebrews 11, 24 through 27, we read this. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So again, three truths from this passage as we go back to Exodus. Truth number one Moses was acting by faith in Exodus chapter 2. This doesn't mean that he was sinless, but it does mean that he was believing the promises of God regarding the deliverance of his people, and that's what motivated his heart to action. Truth number two, from verse 25, Moses made a deliberate choice to be identified with the people of God. And then truth number three from verse 26 As mysterious as it is, Moses had in his mind the reproach of Christ in these events. In other words, this event is not only telling us a story about Moses. 
It's telling us a story about Christ. Okay, so now let's turn back to Exodus chapter 2. Keeping those things in mind, and let's see how this story is unpacked. Verse 11, Exodus chapter 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Notice twice we read that phrase, his people. Here Moses is 40 years old, Acts 7.23, and though he enjoyed the, the palace life for so long, he knew who his true people were. And it says that he looked on their burdens. This wasn't a random walk from the palace where he's just strolling down slave lane. He purposely went down there to look at their burdens. And this, this means that he had a resolve to deliver them. So what did he find on this stroll? Well, he found an Egyptian slave master beating one of his brothers. So what does Moses do? Well, look at verse 12. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So here's, I think, at least the first critical question that we have in our passage um, did Moses murder this Egyptian? Hopefully we know that murder is different than killing. Uh, murder is the unjustified taking of somebody's life, but there are such things as justified killings. Uh, larger Catechism question 136 identifies three types of justified killings. So number one, there's public justice, which means Capital punishment, that's the justified killing of murderers by the magistrate, Genesis 9-6. Number two, there's the killing that takes place in the context of just war. That's justified, Ecclesiastes 3-8. And then number three, there's necessary defense, which um, results in the death of an attacker and that's justified killing also, Exodus 22, 2 through 3. So the question is, is then, is Moses justified in killing this man? And I have commentaries on both sides, believe me. Um, some would say that no, Moses was not justified, that this was murder. And they, they point to clues in the text. They say, well, because of what Moses did immediately before the killing and immediately after the killing. So before Moses killed, verse 12 says that he looked this way and that. He made sure that nobody saw. After the killing, Moses hid the body in the sand. And then in verse 15, it says that he fled to Midian. And so the argument goes that since Moses concealed his actions and then later fled the scene, then it proves that he was guilty of murder. But this doesn't follow. In the book of Judges, uh, remember the story of Ehud, the judge? It's found in Acts, or Judges chapter 3. He, he told Eglon, the king of Moab, I have a secret message for you. And so all of the men left the chamber, 
And then he came up to him, grabbed his sword, shoved his blade into this fat man's belly until the fat closed up over the hilt. And the scripture says, and then the dung came out. And then he went out the windows on the roof and locked the door. So what did Ehud do? He concealed the killing, and then he fled the scene. And yet God says in Judges chapter 3.15 that it was the Lord who raised up Ehud as a deliverer. So that he concealed it and that he fled is not a good enough proof that he committed murder. Let's consider the facts. What, what do we know about the Egyptians at this point? Well, they were covenant breakers. Egypt kidnapped Israel. Egypt forced Israel into slavery. And Egypt was systematically murdering the Jews. Um, these were capital crimes according to God's law. Egypt had ceased to be a biblical legitimate authority according to Romans 13, 1 through 4, just as Nazi Germany had ceased to be a biblically legitimate authority in World War II. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the pastor spy, he was right when he sought the assassination of Hitler because under Hitler's leadership, the Jews were being kidnapped, enslaved, and systematically murdered. And that's what's happening here in Egypt. Moses was acting as a lower magistrate of sorts. He was both a prince of Egypt, Exodus 2.10, and he was a deliverer raised up by God, Acts 7.25. So he was justified in killing this Egyptian slave master on essentially all three grounds that the larger catechism lays forth. So this was an act of public justice, this was an act of just war, and it was an act of necessary defense all rolled up into one. And Calvin concludes this here by saying this, let us conclude that Moses did not rashly have recourse to the sword, but that he was armed by God's command and conscious of his legitimate vocation, rightly and judiciously assumed that character which God assigned to him. In other words, Moses was just a, a judge before the book of Judges, just like Ehud, Gideon, and Samson. He acted as a lawful, God-appointed judge to deliver Israel. Now, Maybe some of you don't agree with me. Um, that's, that's okay. What I hope that you see is that Moses is killing the Egyptian is actually not the main issue in this passage at all. Um, the main issue in this passage is how Israel responded to Moses. Um, look at verse 13. Moses went out again, right, the next day. Behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? And here we see how beautifully Moses displays the Lord Jesus Christ in two back-to-back -back days. The previous day, Moses takes up the office of deliverer. And now he takes up the office of peacemaker. He asked the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion. And the man immediately sneers at Moses in verse 14. Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed 
the Egyptian. Now, there are several things happening here in these two questions. Number one, it had had been only 24 hours, uh, and this rumor that Moses had killed the Egyptian had spread widely. Uh, Halfway through verse 14, we read, Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. Secondly, it's quite apparent that the Jews, instead of rejoicing over this, they resented Moses for it. Uh, This man essentially told Moses to get lost. Nobody made you a judge. Nobody made you a ruler. And this was the opinion, essentially, of all of Israel. That's what Stephen told us back in Acts 7, uh, 35, this Moses, they rejected. So this man wasn't merely um, giving his own opinion. He was giving the consensus of everybody that had heard the rumor. Thirdly, this man threatened Moses. He said, do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? How is this a threat? Well, because the Egyptians would have killed any Jew that, that killed an Egyptian. And Moses, of course, killed an Egyptian. And the man who hated Moses knew it. And so Moses read between the lines. And that's why he fled to Midian in verse 15. And then fourthly and finally, it was the Jews that had betrayed Moses to Pharaoh. Look at verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. Well, how did Pharaoh find out about this killing? Um, I mean, do the math. Moses looked this way and that. The only person that saw Moses kill the Egyptian was the person that Moses saved. Uh, The Egyptians and Pharaoh found out not because they saw it, uh, but because they were told by the very people that Moses was seeking to deliver. So in summary, what we see here is that Israel as a whole was more committed to their slavery than their salvation. They would rather have the devil Pharaoh than the deliverer Moses. And that brings us then to our doctrine this morning. All saviors are rejected by the very people that they're trying to save. And thus is the madness of sin. The proofs of this doctrine are legion throughout Scripture. But let's just take five. So so proof number one of this doctrine is the rejection of Samson. The rejection of Samson. Like Moses, Samson had a very messianic birth. His birth was promised by an angel. Judges 13.3. His parents were told, this child shall be a Nazarite to, to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel. From the hand of the Philistines, Judges 13, 5. But what did the Jews do to Samson after his very first victory over the Philistines? They found him in the cleft of the rock at Edom, and they said to him, Judges 15, 12, we have come down to bind you that we may give you into the hand of the Philistines. God raised up a savior for them, and they're going to hand him over to their enemies to kill them. Proof number two, 
the rejection of David. In 1 Samuel 16, Samuel anointed David to be king, Lord protector over all of Israel. And he did this in the hearing of his own brothers, his own family. Verse 13 tells us that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him from that day forward. Well, what happens in the, next, in the very next chapter? Well, Goliath comes forward to battle and David steps on the battlefield as his first act to save Israel. And what does he hear from his own family? His own family rejects him. Uh, Eliab, his oldest brother, says to him in verse 28, Why have you come down? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. God raised up a savior, and the people rejected him. Proof number three, the rejection of Elisha. The rejection of Elisha. Um, Children, boys and girls, even little kids reject the saviors that God has sent for them. This is so important to hear. Elijah the prophet, Elisha's predecessor, he did many mighty things in Israel. He stopped the rain for three years, 1 Kings 17.1. He killed all the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.40. And when God took him to heaven, God raised up Elisha to be the next great prophet. And, And think about what these little kids would have understood about what Elijah did and what this meant for Elisha, who was getting a double portion. But what did these little boys do when they met Elisha on the road? They yelled at him. They said, um, go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. 2 Kings 2.23. They wanted Elisha to leave planet Earth just like Elijah did. They didn't want a savior near them. God raised up a savior and they rejected him. Proof number four, the rejection of Jeremiah. The rejection of Jeremiah. God raised up Jeremiah to be a light and a prophet to all the nations of the earth, Jeremiah 1.5. But when Jeremiah opened his mouth to bring God's message, they would not listen. Jeremiah 7.27. In fact, when he persisted in speaking... They sought to kill him, Jeremiah eleven twenty one. They scourged him and put him in stocks, Jeremiah twenty two. A death sentence was pronounced against him, Jeremiah twenty six eleven. He was thrown in prison, Jeremiah thirty two two. The king burned his scrolls that contained the word of God, Jeremiah thirty six twenty three. And lastly, they threw him in a well filled with mud so that he would sink down to the bottom and die, Judges thirty eight five through six. God raised up a savior for them, and they rejected him. Proof number five, the rejection of Jesus Christ. See, every previous savior points to this final savior, the son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew 21, 37 says, finally... He sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But to God's own son, they actually did their worst. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. He was the cornerstone that the builders had rejected. He's a stumbling block to Israel, and he's folly to the Gentiles. You see, it's not just 
one family or one people group or, or one nation or one epoch that has rejected the Savior. But, but Christ Jesus has been universally rejected. Isaiah 53.3 says, He was despised and rejected by men and as one who men hide their faces. Jesus prophetically calls out in Psalm 22, 6 through 7, But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. This comes through even in the way that humanity curses. And I I know I've said this before, but nobody uses the name of Joseph Smith or Allah or Buddha as blasphemous curse words. Only Christ. Only Christ. That's the way that, that humanity shows their disgust. Nothing shows the madness of sin more than how the incarnate Son of God is treated in this world. He came into this world to save men, and men hated him for it. John 3.19, this is the judgment that light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Dear congregation, this is the story that Moses is teaching us, that God raised up a savior, and Israel chose their slavery instead. God gave them a deliverer. They chose death. And this teaches us one vital lesson that we we must not miss. The Egyptians are not the only problem in Egypt. Israel was the problem. They didn't want a savior. And, And this is one of the great truths of the gospel. It's actually the stumbling stone of the gospel. It's not merely that we stand guilty before God. It's that we don't care. It's that we don't want to be saved. We just want God to leave us alone. So that's our doctrine, that all saviors are rejected by the very people that they're trying to save, and thus is the madness of sin. Let's look secondly then at our duty this morning. And our first duty is simply to consider the the madness of sin, the madness of it. The man in this story who who sneered at Moses. He was happy to continue in his sin against his neighbor, even if that meant that he remained in bondage to Pharaoh. And that's the madness of all sinners before they come to Christ. We don't want a prince and we don't want a ruler ruling over us. The madness of sin is not that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The madness of sin is that we don't want to be saved. We don't want to be delivered. And somebody might say to me, well, Josh, you're, you're, you're twisting the narrative here because actually the children of Israel did want to be delivered. Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 
halfway through, it says, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. I agree, they did groan, they did cry out for help. They wanted salvation from their misery. But when it was offered, when that salvation was offered in this person of Moses, the Savior, they outright rejected it. It's like what Tolkien said about Gollum, that he both loved and hated the ring. The same is true with all sinners. We all want to be saved from the grief and the misery of sin, but we don't want to be saved from the sinning itself. This is the madness of sin. Children, boys and girls, you must understand very carefully what I'm saying. You've been raised since you've been a very little child that sin makes us guilty before God. But did you know that sin makes you insane before God? Think, think of uh, 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 this story. Think of the insanity of a man who is very, very sick. And he begs and he begs for medicine that he might be healed. And finally, some chap comes along and he brings him the medicine and he even offers it to him freely so that the man could be healed. And then the man throws it back at his face and he curses the man who brings him the medicine. Don't you see? That's, a, that's the very picture of this man who is sneering at Moses. Imagine, imagine the man in your mind, the slave. He has whip marks deep in his back, scars from years and years of being whipped. He was terribly malnourished. You can see his ribs. He and his wife suffer under the terrible bondage of Pharaoh day after day, year after year. And every night he goes home to his shack. He cries out to God to save him from this Egyptian hellhole. And then God sends Moses as a savior to rescue him as an answer to his prayer. And then Moses shows up on the scene and he rejects the savior. He threatens him. He curses him. And so it is with the sinner. The sinner's conscience is guilty. He feels shame in his bones. Day after day, he feels miserable, depressed, and even suicidal. He, he's living in the darkness. But then when Christ, the light of the world, is offered to him, he scoffs and mocks and thinks the very idea of a savior is absurd. That's the madness of sin. It's madness. So then our second duty then is to examine ourselves this morning. This sneering man is a picture of the person who is not yet saved, who is miserable in his sin, but he's unwilling to come to the Savior. So this morning, dear congregation, ask yourself, is that me? Am I unsaved? Are you in that terrible place where you, you long to be saved from the misery, but you want to continue in your sin? Dear friend, don't believe that lie 
That if you come to the Savior, that somehow your life will be more miserable. That if this Christ were to be your prince and ruler, that you would be in a worse state. That's a lie. It's a lie. The scripture says, unto you this day a son is given, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Oh, dear friend, think of how this Savior is presented to you from the very pages of Scripture. He is called Wonderful Counselor. That means he is wise enough to satisfy your deepest longings, longings that you don't even know that you have. Psalm 37, 4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. But this Jesus, he's also called the mighty God, the mighty God. You have never, ever been able to defeat the evil and sin in your life, let alone in your heart. It goes too deep. But Jesus Christ, the mighty God, can deliver you. When he speaks, the mountains tremble. When he speaks, the forests are stripped bare. But he's also called the everlasting father. This Christ, that means that he is the author of eternity. He's the author of eternal life. That all things were created um, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And in him, all things are held together. Which means if your life is broken and falling apart, Christ, the everlasting Father, can author your life and bring back all the broken pieces and put you together. But he's also called the Prince of Peace. The unsaved man is at war. He's at war with his own soul. He's at war with others. He's at war with God. If that's you this morning, you've only known a life of war, but Jesus is the Prince of Peace. If you call on him, if you receive him, if you believe on his name, then he will not count your transgressions against you. You will find peace for the first time in your whole life. That's the promise of Scripture, that those who come to Christ have peace with God. So if that's you, dear friend, consider carefully that if you continue to reject this Savior, that there is a ruin coming, a ruin. Since Israel had rejected Moses, the Savior that God had sent for him, they were given another 40 years of bondage. Moses fled to Midian. If you're lost this morning, how can you stand another day of bondage? What has this godless life ever produced in you that that brought you joy? Haven't your sorrows multiplied as you have plunged deeper into sin? But there's actually even a greater danger that's coming. The scripture says that if you will not have Christ as your prince and your ruler, that you'll be damned. John 3.36 says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Turn to the Son. Turn to the Savior. 
Turn away from the madness of sin. Turn to the Savior, this Son, whom God has sent to you to to rescue you from this slavery of sin. Let's look finally at our delight this morning. Why does God want us to know this doctrine? Why why does he want us to know that since the beginning, every Savior that he has sent, man has rejected? Why does he want us to see that it's not just Egypt that is evil, but also Israel? Not just the world that needs saving, but also the church. Why? Well, two reasons. First, because God wants all the glory in our salvation. Every scrap of it, every crumb of it, every atom of it. This is the doctrine that we learned in the book of Corinthians. Paul told the Corinthians in chapter 1 to consider, to think about, to meditate upon their calling. Consider carefully what God chose when he saved them. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 31 says, God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. God chose what is low and despised so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus so that as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. This incident with Moses is meant to show us that we were foolish, that we were weak, that we were despised and despising before God saved us. It's meant to show us that it's not we who pursued God, but that God pursued us so that all glory and honor and praise be given to him and him alone. When the psalmist is reflecting on the events of the Exodus, he says this in Psalm 106, 7 and 8. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled. Yet, you saved them for your name's sake. That's precisely how God saves us today. For by grace are you saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as the result of works, so that no one may boast. You do not prepare yourself to be saved. You are a hot dumpster fire, and you want to burn God is is bringing the extinguishing hose to put you out and you're throwing flames on him and you're cursing at him. Get away from me. And he saves you. And he saves you. What did you contribute? Your madness, your insanity, your guilt. That's what you contributed. God gets all the glory. 
The second reason that God wants us to know this doctrine, that every Savior that he has sent in the world, we have rejected. The second reason is so that we would be able to behold the love of God. What kind of a God would do this? A God who sends Savior after Savior, prophet after prophet, deliverer after deliverer, only to have us reject and despise every single one of them. Matthew 21, 36 and 38 says this, Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Do you think God knew that when he sent his son to the world that we would slay him? That was his plan. That was his plan. He wasn't deceived in the infinite wisdom and the infinite love of God. He sent his son into the world so that we would wound him and reject him and crucify him. Loved ones, it's only in the death of Christ that the guilt and madness of our sin could actually be taken away. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you are healed. Oh, behold the love of God, that he would send his only son for our sake. Could a greater gift have ever been given? If God were to round up all the, the different worlds in the universe and bring them to you, if God were able to do far more than you could think or even imagine, if you could not conceive of a greater gift than for him to give you his one and only son, that God would become man and hated by the very man that he came to save, and God would do it anyway. That's the gospel that... In Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies, while we were still stuck in the madness and guilt of our sin, Christ died for us. That's why God wants us to see this doctrine. He did not save us because we were better than Egypt or because we were on his team or because we accepted him when he came to us. no. He saved us only because he loved us. Why did he love us? Because he loved us. This Savior rescued us, though we rejected him. And that Savior is the same Savior yesterday and today and forever. Loved ones, if you are backsliding or if you are caught in sin or if you are struggling in a dark place right now, know that it's not your sincerity that makes you prepared for God to love you. God loves you because he sent his son. And you are in him by faith. He can never turn away from you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a storyline in 